Thanks for joining us today. The pandemic has increased the need for critical services offered by some nonprofits, while at the same time created service delivery and fundraising challenges for many nonprofit organizations. In today's discussion, we'll cover where are the greatest areas of need in the community, innovative strategies nonprofits are using to deliver impact and secure funding, steps donors can take to enhance the resiliency of organizations they support, charitable options to help those most affected by the current environment, and special tax incentives for charitable giving. I'm Todd Eckler, Executive Director of Fiduciary Trust Charitable. FT Charitable is an independent public charity that offers flexible donor-advised funds managed by Fiduciary Trust Company and independent financial advisors. I'm joined today by Kate Gedge, Senior Vice President and Chief Philanthropy Officer at the Boston Foundation. The Boston Foundation is one of the oldest and largest community foundations in the country. And our second guest is John LaFleur, Managing Director at Strategic Philanthropy Limited, a philanthropic advisory firm which consults with high net worth donors on their charitable and legacy giving. Welcome, Kate and John. Thanks, Todd. Thank you. So let's get started. I think a useful place to begin is to get a better understanding of where the needs are greatest in the community. Kate, given your role as a senior leader at the Boston Foundation, I know you're well tapped into the needs of the Boston community, which I expect is representative of the needs of many communities across the country. Where have you seen needs that are the greatest? Well, Todd, COVID has hit hard in Boston and across the country. We see things like food insecurity, housing insecurity, domestic violence concerns, child care and elder care issues, job loss, financial hardship impacting the most vulnerable economically, particularly low-wage workers, and all disproportionately hitting communities of color and immigrant communities in our backyard. In fact, the Boston Foundation's research arm, Boston Indicators, has uh, launched a COVID community data lab to track changes in our community and emergent needs in near real time. And you can see that at bostonindicators.org. Thanks for sharing your perspective, Kate. Clearly the pandemic has amplified and expanded the needs in the community. In a few minutes, we'll discuss specific ways donors and board members can help. In addition to this being a challenging time for many people in the community, it's also been a difficult time for the nonprofits that serve them. On the nonprofit front, I've seen three primary challenges, fundraising, delivery, and operations. On the fundraising front, there've been cancellations of fundraising events and reduced giving from donors who've been significantly economically impacted from the pandemic. On the delivery front, the vast majority of nonprofits normally have direct face-to-face -face contact with the communities they serve. This creates a delivery challenge with facility closures and distancing requirements. And on the operations front, with the spring lockdowns in many states, this created further difficulties for some nonprofits who lack the technology and infrastructure for remote working or the nature of their work can't easily be adapted to a remote environment. Kate, what have you observed in terms of the challenges nonprofits are facing and what are some of the innovative and other strategies they're taking to address them? In terms of challenges, there's been both increased demand for some like food banks and collapsing demand for others like arts organizations or school-based educational programs. 
Many have had to cancel fundraising events or go virtual for a third of the money they usually raise. There's incredible loss of earned revenue. I'm on the board of Zoo New England and our zoo was closed for three months and missed three months of very, very important earned revenue. Museum, arts organizations, but also social service organizations that have developed earned income revenue strategies. Uh, in Boston, that would be more than words or the Pine Street Inn um, and Commonwealth Kitchen among many others. Individual donors are facing uncertainty with regard to their finances. At, our, at, at the Boston Foundation for our annual campaign, we decided not to even pursue people who were um, found their incomes from real estate or hospitality, for example. And institutional donors are changing direction and diverting resources to meet basic needs, which is very important but is a challenge for nonprofits who program, whose programs hit higher on Maslow's pyramid. In terms of innovations, um, there have been many, and it's really incredible to see how quickly uh, many organizations have uh, pivoted and changed in this environment. They've tried new service delivery methods. There's a um, job training program in Chelsea that near Boston that focused on um, recidivism work and it pivoted quickly on a dime and became an emergency response humanitarian organization. There's new collaborations um, between like-minded like or allied nonprofits. There's an immigrant uh, collaborative in Boston here that brought together 11 different organizations to provide direct emergency relief and culturally competent food to immigrant families. Virtual fundraising events, while not as great for the bottom line, do have a tendency to expand audiences because the bar is lower um, in terms of cost of entry. And people have had more time on their hands, some with a little bit of disposable income savings, and some organizations have done successful Zoom-hosted trivia nights and um, innovative fundraisers like that. So it is it has been it has been challenging, but it also has been um, incredible to watch the creativity that can come from that time. Thanks, Kate. It's great to see many nonprofits pivoting and innovating to meet the changing and growing needs in the community. In my own experience, I've been struck by how the ability to respond quickly to the COVID pandemic can not only help an organization and the people it serves, but also can spark the interest of new donors and funders. I'm on the board of Grassroots Soccer, which is an organization focused on adolescent health in Africa. And when the pandemic hit, they were quick to create a COVID specific curriculum that they made widely available in both existing and new kind of digital channels. And not only did it help the communities they serve, but interestingly, their quick deployment attracted the interest of new foundation and government uh, potential funders, ones that they hadn't had as deep a conversations with in the past. So my takeaway from this experience is, you know, one is just the value of moving quickly when new needs arise. And secondly, is the importance of considering new delivery channels, because that was also a source of interest of, of potentially new funders in a way to help, most importantly, the constituents they serve. John, in our past conversations, you've mentioned some innovative approaches to nonprofits uh, that have been pursuing that you've been involved with. Could you share one of those examples? So it really is going to depend on what sector the nonprofit is operating in and you know, the solutions for um, what, the term, what everyone's using as the term of pivoting. 
um, which is basically realigning uh, the way that you delivered your services uh, as a nonprofit. What you know, however you're going to pivot is really going to de depend on what it is that you, uh, what it is you do, what what your mission's about. Um, one great example that uh, I'm particularly proud of is an arts organization that um, I'm on the board of the uh, Side Street Studio Arts. Uh, one of their missions is to deliver arts education and arts classes to students, which obviously during this time is um, you know not possible to do in person, as it would often do on a um, you know on an after school basis or or on a weekend basis. Um, so what they came up with was a, uh, a brown bag option. And I've, I and my boys have delivered probably 200 of these to family doorsteps uh, where they um, you know, were dropping art kits at home and then holding online classes so kids can actually open up the brown bag, uh, do uh, a painting, do a small sculpture. And, um, you know, it's it's been a really innovative solution. I'm particularly proud of it. And there's. Uh, that's the way that you know nonprofits need to think. If you if you can't do it in person, if you can't do it the way that you used to do it, you know what's a new what's what's a way that you could? What could you do in this environment? And that's a, that's been one of the ones that I'm, I'm particularly happy to see and and be supportive of. That's a great example, John. Clearly, nonprofits are facing a number of challenges, but it's also encouraging to see the innovation underway, which will hopefully yield long-term benefits. We discussed the difficulties many of our people in our community are experiencing, as well as the challenges facing nonprofits. John, how can donors best assist communities and nonprofits in need? For folks that are charitably inclined, um, I think they really need to, this is a great time to just sort of take a step back and look at your philanthropic capital and understand what it is that you have available, and then also what it is that you could be doing with it now at a time when um, pretty much everyone has sort of come to the conclusion that, that this is the rainy day that people all uh, in, in philanthropy and in the nonprofit world always thought about, right? Like this is, this is a really, un and I know that some folks are weary of hearing the word unprecedented, but this is an unprecedented time to take a step back and look at your philanthropic capital and, and whatever vehicle you're in, if you're in a private foundation, you know, if you're in a private foundation, perhaps you could look at um, uh, the, you know, your payout rate. Um, a lot of folks are not just at the mandatory five percent. They're at the, you know, they're they're willing to uh, go a little bit beyond that. Now is the perfect time to examine whether or not you can pay out more than the five percent that you've typically been doing. Um, you could um, also take a look at your corpus, um, not you know to. Your, your, your approach to investing. Um, are you an impact investor? Are your, the assets of your foundation invested in a way to make a difference? And now I think, you know, going forward, time for uh, especially folks like yourself, Todd, to be having discussions with clients about how their investments in their private foundations uh, are doing, are, are married to the mission that those foundations were set up to carry out. If you've got a donor advised fund, you know, that's the most flexibility that you could have. Um, you, you know, you're, you don't have a mandatory payout rate. Now by, might be the time to look at making additional gifts in 2020. And then if you're looking to consider adding more to your charitable vehicles, um, you know, there's a lot of tax incentives in 2020 
to um, to um, really take a look back at your estate planning and, and see if maybe instead of some of the gifts that you plan to be testamentary, perhaps you want to be making those in your lifetime and just really revisiting um, your entire balance sheet to see that if there's an eventual transition to a philanthropic vehicle, uh, 2020 might be the year to sort of revisit that. Thanks, John. Yes, clearly this is a time when funders can step up and make a big difference in the future of a variety of nonprofits and communities that they serve. I was interested to learn earlier this month that the Ford Foundation is issuing a $1 billion long-term bond to enable it to increase grant making for a period of time. According to the foundation's website, I think they plan to increase grants from about $550 million a year to over a billion. Is borrowing to increase grant making a trend we're likely to see in the near term? I'm really, I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, and I, um, so just very briefly, you know, in my, my time in Boston, when I was with the Highland Street Foundation, we did exactly that to work on Home Funders, uh, which is a collaborative that actually the Boston Foundation is involved in because interest rates were historically low and did exactly that because we could make more money in the market. Uh, and, and as a foundation, we had obviously excellent credit and we borrowed money to put it into a low-income housing pool. I am hoping that foundations will, will, get, will take Ford's lead on this and be much more creative about, um, you know, again, the entirety of the assets they have at hand. You know, that, you know, the, the 5% they have to pay out every year. Let's, let's take a look at the 95% and figure out, can we um, invest it better? Can we leverage it, uh, particularly in this interest rate environment and uh, put more of it to work? Ultimately, it's, it's gonna be about getting as much philanthropic capital out working uh, as, as we can. Private donors really need to kind of just take it, sit down with their wealth advisor and take a look at their, their, um, their balance sheet. Thanks for sharing that, John. Now, turning to you, Kate, earlier we discussed a variety of ways nonprofits have been pivoting to continue delivering services during the pandemic. Some of these organizations are focused on those most impacted by COVID and others provide important value to the community, but aren't as focused on the COVID specific impact. What do you see as some of the key opportunities to provide targeted relief to those most impacted by COVID-19 and in some places exacerbated by the recent social unrest? Well, Todd, pandemics, and we're in the middle of three, frankly, the COVID, the financial downturn, economic downturn, and the racial unrest. Um, but even those that are more health-related, they exacerbate the impact of decades of systems, policies, and practices that have disproportionately put Blacks and Latinx uh, and other historically marginalized communities at greater risk. So we have focused explicitly on racial equity in our grant making. From the start, our COVID response fund focused this framework on every grant that it made. And it made those grants in what we call a trust-based philanthropy mode, which is to say um, general operating support, period. TBF's application for support from the response fund asked for 250 word responses. That's it. We didn't ask the frontline organizations for reams of paper, are bogging them down with questions. We wanted to get the money out the door. 
Um, but the other thing is that it's important to be proximate, proximate to the work and proximate to the community. And we were intensely focused on supporting organizations and leaders who were authentically connected to communities of color and serving their needs. We've get, granted already 210 grants totaling over $6 million and more than 60% of those grantees are led by people of color and fully two thirds have annual budgets under 5 million. Social unrest, specifically beyond COVID and beyond the financial meltdown, um, the most important aspect for that for us is to invest in black and immigrant led organizations, make those investments substantial and make them sustained. At the Boston Foundation, we have a donor advised fund program and we saw giving from donor advised funds um, in FY20, which is July through May, top $160 million, 56 million more than last year or a 52% increase. Many of these grants were made with advice from us around food insecurity, immigrant support, and racial justice organizations. We really firmly believe that you should give general operating support to your favorite nonprofits and dig deep for current needs facing these pandemics. Thanks for those valuable suggestions, Kate. To further assist with the COVID relief efforts, I encourage our audience to contribute their time and resources to support those areas of need they believe are most important. Fiduciary Trust has a long history of supporting the community with volunteer time, board service, and financial resources. Recognizing that the health and economic impacts of COVID-19 are disproportionately impacting communities of color, Fiduciary Trust has established a matching grant program through the COVID-19 Response Fund at the Boston Foundation. For those interested in participating, Fiduciary Trust will match gifts from our audience from now through July 31st, 2020, up to a total contribution of $10,000. Our matching contribution will go to support COVID relief efforts focused on supporting communities of color. To learn more about the match program and to participate, go to fiduciary-trust.com forward slash relief. Kate, thanks to you and the Boston Foundation for establishing the COVID Response Fund and using it to support critical needs of nonprofits serving the community. Todd, thank you and thank Fiduciary Trust for offering this matching gift of so generously of $10,000. And thank you to everyone who participates in the match. It's deeply appreciated. Now I'd like to switch gears. We've been discussing ways to help vulnerable communities through nonprofits that are more focused on the basic needs of these communities. However, there are a lot of other vital nonprofits which aren't as focused on those suffering the most in the pandemic. Examples could be such as cancer research, higher ed, and the arts. Of course, these types of organizations also typically have some activity supporting uh, under-resourced communities, but not front and center in the pandemic relief. So what can donors do to help the nonprofits they've been supporting manage through this challenging period of funding and delivery? Over to you, John, for this one. So, um, excellent question. And I think uh, in response to that, donors um, should really be opening up proactively uh, their communication with the nonprofits that they support. And then now's the time to sort of reach out. And, you know, you may not, you may just be a donor, you may be a board member, 
And if you're a board member, you got to be the board member, right? You have to, um, you have to show up. You have to, um, you have to reach out. You have to participate. Um, maybe like as if you never have before in your entire tenure as a as a board member. Um, you know, we we represent and, and work for the donor side of things, but in that in the context of that work, we're in constant communication with nonprofits, and uh, the nonprofits uh, would love to hear from the folks that support them and be able to have an open line of communication. And that's not typically the way that, you know, charitable support always works, right? Um, a lot of people will send out their, their, their check and then they'll, they'll uh, you know, wait for some feedback or wait for an update. And I think the overarching message right now is that communication, um, constant communication is really needs to be on, you know, on a, on a much more stepped up level for 2020 because um, this is all still in a big state of flux. Um, you know, some folks have been able to get support um, through the government programs like PPP or SBA disaster loans. Um, some folks haven't. Um, others are, uh, you know, we're not in a position to even qualify for it. Um, I'm on the board of a, a dance group up in Rogers Park in Chicago and everybody's on a 1099. They're just too small to be able to take advantage of programs that I've seen other nonprofits basically sort of, you know, catch their breath and plan to survive with. To your point about higher education, um, you know, some of those organizations have endowments um, and a lot of them, uh, you know, are not going to be able to tap those endowments as much as they would like to be able to carry them through whatever shortfalls they might have for the coming year, which frankly are still uh, in a state of flux. Nobody knows what's going to happen exactly in the fall. Um, I th so which this goes back to my overarching point of communication. We're going to want to know through the whole summer as this, as this pandemic continues to play out, we're going to know what nonprofits are seeing just because they have a view on something today. Um, doesn't mean that it's going to be the same three months from now. And I can say that for an uh, animal welfare organization we work with in New York, as soon as everything locked down, they had more volunteers, they had more adoptions, they had more fostering, and they even had more donations uh, from folks who were stuck at home and were able to adopt a cat uh, and, or a dog and, and bring them home. Now, we just had... Uh, in this past week, we've had follow-up conversations, uh, you know, on behalf of our clients to figure out, okay, how are folks holding up three months later? And the answer is not so well, uh, because donations have dropped off, uh, things are starting to open up, uh, the volunteer time is not as uh, high as it was three months ago. So things have just changed dramatically, and now we need to start talking about what um, my client, who's a private foundation, is going to do for support for them through this through this this period. So I think again, you know, and we stayed on top of that through communication by having our proactive conversations three months ago, by having follow up ones just last week, um, and we're going to have to do that for the rest of all of 2020 and into 2021. So I think if you're a donor, you really need to stay very focused on just being aware of the organizations that you're involved in. And then if you're to the point of involvement, if you're a board member, board members need to show up like they never have before. Now I'd like to turn to questions submitted in advance from our audience. 
The first is particularly timely given some of the recent social unrest. What are ways an organizations are ensuring they're serving the needs of diverse people, interests, and cultures? Kate, could you share your perspective on this front? Absolutely. We like to go by the adage, do nothing for me without me. Or as our Congresswoman Ayanna Presley says, people closest to the pain should be closest to the power. Organizations have to listen to their clients, constituents, and stakeholders and put them at the table where decisions are being made about programs and services. The days of savior, savior service delivery models are over. Our ongoing open door grant program and many of our other discretionary grant making programs have, a, a, have an explicit preference for organizations led by people of color, both in the C-suite and on the board. Real results on diversity and inclusion in leadership and top-line service delivery are becoming absolute necessities for nonprofit organizations. Thanks, Kate. Here's another question. I've made a gift to a school to endow a scholarship. What happens to the scholarship fund if the school goes under? John, this looks like a good one for you. What are your thoughts? So there, there is some precedence for this. Um, we have seen some smaller colleges close in the last few years. Uh, and those restricted endowments are transferred to, you know, the, the whole process is uh, overseen by each state's attorney general and the IRS. So, um, you know, it's most likely the state's attorney general that's going to be working diligently to figure out where those restricted uh, endowments, which, you know, a scholarship would, would be that, that uh, type of restricted endowment, where they're going to end up. Uh, they will most likely be transferred to another school that's willing to take them on. Um, and, you know, I think this is a great time and Todd, you and I have talked about this is that, that, you know, tragically and just frankly, just realistically, not everyone is going to be able to weather, uh, the effects of this pandemic. Not every nonprofit is going to be able to come out of it, um, the same way. And so if this were to happen, this is just a great time for donors to take a look at their restricted gifts see if they still make sense, um, see if there's something that's going to survive the test of time, and if the institutions that, that they've entrusted their gifts with um, are going to be able to weather uh, this, not just this storm, but maybe a future storm. And then to anticipate, um, you can go back and look at your, you know, look at the gift agreements that you've got in place, look at the gift agreements that you are in, that are in the process right now. So if you're, if you're doing some estate planning, uh, and you've got a restricted gift for a scholarship, if you've got a restricted gift for some sort of activity, um, you know, a, a great story, which maybe Kate can could even uh, update on would be uh, the Boston Foundation. When I first started working with them, had a shared a story of an endowment that was meant to do ballet performances on the hat shell on the Charles River. Well, those were not really feasible to be continued into the future. Um, Donors should be looking at um, the feasibility of their gifts and their grant agreements, and then also just sort of playing it out in their head. What happens if? And um, you know, that, those are the kind of conversations we have uh, very frequently with with uh, donors when it comes to legacy planning. And it's something that, uh, again, advisor, I encourage advisors like yourself as you're looking at a, your your client's whole philanthropic plan. Um, to open those conversations up and, and now's just a great time to do it. Those are great points, John. 
Donors should also know that grants that are given to public charities with a restricted purpose, such as to fund a specific program in the organization, may be protected from creditors in the event the organization goes under. If there are still endowment funds in the organization, a key question is where do those assets go when the nonprofit ceases to exist, as you mentioned? If a public charity has a restricted purpose by its nature of its mission uh, when it dissolves, the state attorney general's office will typically require the fund to be given to another public charity with a similar mission. We've had nonprofits come to us, such as a dissolving religious institution and a geographically focused public charity, with an interest in moving their funds to fiduciary trust charitable and a donor advised fund. However, generally, since donor advised funds allow grants to any um, IRS qualified public charity, the state attorney general or other charities regulators may not allow such a transfer. This is because the funds would be coming from an organization with a restricted purpose, but then going to a donor advised fund with few restrictions. To address this need, Fiduciary Trust Charitable developed a special restricted donor advised fund program for which we're proud to have recently earned an innovation award. It maintains the restrictions that are similar to the public charity's mission or the specified permitted use of the funds, but enables the funds to be managed in a donor advised fund, which can provide more grant flexibility and administrative simplicity. For example, if you've endowed a chair at a higher ed institution that's likely to dissolve, but you're not excited about another institution uh, receiving those funds, you may want to encourage the school to request permission from the state attorney general's office or other state judicial court or other entity that regulates the dissolution process to transfer the assets into our restricted donor advised fund and potentially name you or someone you designate as a charitable advisor for the fund. If any of our uh, listeners or audience members are interested in learning about restricted DAFs, please reach out to me. For the next question, this one is, uh, I understand the federal government has increased incentives for charitable giving. Could you share the highlights? I'll take this one. To encourage donations to nonprofits, the federal government enacted two special incentives for 2020. For those who are interested in making large donations relative to their income levels, the first incentive allows you to deduct, for federal tax purposes, charitable gifts of up to 100% of your adjusted gross income. Before this change, the limit was 60%. The second incentive allows individuals to deduct $300 in charitable gifts, even if you're not isomizing. This figures $600 for married couples filing jointly. It's important to note that these two incentives only apply to cash gifts to public charities, including supporting organizations, and don't apply for gifts to donor advised funds. Donors continue to receive charitable deductions for gifts to donor advised funds and private foundations. For gifts of securities held more than one year, donors who are itemizing can deduct up to 30% of their adjusted gross income for gifts to donor advised funds, and up to 20% of adjusted gross income for gifts to private foundations. While we don't have time to get into it here, there's an interesting tax strategy called charitable gift bunching that can enable some donors to increase their deductions for charitable giving over a course of a few years. To learn about this strategy, go to fiduciary-trust.com forward slash bunching. 
Finally, another tax advantage way to give is a Qualified Charitable Distribution, or QCD, from an IRA. If you're 70 and a half or older, you can distribute up to $100,000 per year from your IRA to a qualified charity without incurring federal taxes from the distribution. A QCD can satisfy an IRA required minimum distribution as long as certain rules are met. Of course, it's important to consult with your tax advisor before pursuing tax-related strategies. Now for our final question. The distancing requirements have caused many nonprofits to transform their delivery models to remotely deliver their services or operate in a different manner. After we get through this pandemic, for the organizations that manage, which will hopefully be a lot of them, do you think this is going to create long-term change in the way that they operate? John, you want to take this one? I don't think there's a way that you can answer that um, in general with like an, like an overarching answer because it's really going to, like as we've been talking about today, uh, it's going to depend on the sector. It's going to depend on how the, the nonprofit delivers their services. Um, I mean, I think there's, you know, people are, uh, at first were worried about getting back to normal. Now there's going to be the new normal or the next normal. Um, things are going to adapt depending on uh, what, you know, what exactly it is that, that nonprofits do. You, you will see, and, and then that's all going to, you know, I'm an accountant by degree, so I'm, it's all going to come down to math. Um, museums that have to work with um, social distancing requirements are going to be able to take in fewer visitors, you know, and their, you know, a lot of their business model is based on how many visitors a year, you know, how much they're they're paying to get in, how much they're they're spending at a, at a gift shop, uh, how how much they're being cultivated as donors, you know, that's going to be adjusted based on the capacity that they're going to be able to work under under this new model. Same thing for higher education, uh, they may have. Uh, some combination of you know uh, students that are attending uh, on site, some that are attending um, you know uh, remotely, uh, but that may impact how, how much income they're able to bring in from uh, student housing. So everyone's going to have some sort of adjustment, and I think it's really just going to depend on. I mean, we're not going to get back to exactly the way that it was. I don't think anybody really expects that, um, and I'm not. Also not saying that everyone's going to have diminished capacity because, again, going back to the arts group, um, you know, you and I have talked about this, Todd. Some of these things are going to survive, you know, the, the, the necessity for staying alive that's been developed during this just this initial period of the effects of the pandemic. Um, some of those things were really good ideas. We, we have a lot of uh, collaborations coming out of this. We have a lot of innovations coming out of this. Uh, again, just, just quickly revisiting the arts group that I'm part of, um, you know, having online classes wasn't something that they had done before, but now there's no reason not to do them going forward as, as the gallery and the classrooms open up again. We can do both, actually. You know, it, it, it actually will lead to some growth for the organization, and I think you'll see some combination of that and then some combination of, you know, some sort of, um, you know, little bit of contraction um, and it's really just going to depend on, on which organization and which mission you're talking about. I agree, John. While the pandemic has created challenges for many nonprofits, the innovation in delivery and fundraising will provide lasting benefit for many organizations and those they serve. Well, that covers the questions we have time for today. 
I'd like to give a big thank you to Kate and John for joining today and sharing their valuable perspectives. If you have questions for me, Kate or John, I encourage you to reach out to us or our respective organizations. I hope that our audience found the discussion useful. Fiduciary Trust Company, the program sponsor, helps clients achieve their philanthropic goals through integrating charitable planning into the wealth planning process. Fiduciary can also establish and manage a variety of charitable giving vehicles, including endowments, foundations, charitable trusts, and donor-advised funds through Fiduciary Trust Charitable. To learn more about how Fiduciary Trust can help, please reach out to your Fiduciary Trust Company investment officer or contact Rick Tyson at 617-292-6799 or Tyson at fiduciary-trust.com. Thanks again for joining today. We hope you stay safe and healthy. The opinions expressed in this material are as of the date issued and subject to change at any time. The views of the panelists are their own and may not represent the opinions of Fiduciary Trust Company. Nothing contained herein is intended to constitute investment, legal, tax, or accounting advice, and you should discuss any proposed arrangement or transaction with your investment, legal, or tax advisors. Copyright Fiduciary Trust Company.